Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started as people come in. Just come in and make yourself comfortable. I am really anxious to get to this lesson. This lesson is going to make a huge difference in the quality of your Christian life. So let me say a prayer and we're going to dive right in. Lord, thank you for this evening. We come together to study your word. I pray that you would open our minds, our hearts, pour in your grace and your knowledge, and that we might grow in our appreciation and our love for you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as usual, text your questions in during the uh, class. We'll answer as many as we can. Let me give you a brief review of what we talked about last time and reframe where we're going in this series about the stories Jesus told. The parables are, uh, account for about 35% of Jesus' teaching. And these parables are fundamentally describing the kingdom life. This idea of the kingdom is absolutely foundational to what Jesus came to do. We basically said this, that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They're the same thing. And he came to extend the rule of God. So what is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? It is the, the rule of God, both in the world and in our hearts. Those were the parables of describing the kingdom that we looked at in our last lesson, is the kingdom is like, and describe the spread of the kingdom in the world, and the kingdom is like, and describe the spread of the kingdom within us, the growth within us. So Jesus came to reclaim something that God did not rule. Jesus said that Satan is the ruler of this present world. He came to establish the kingdom and basically to reclaim us for God. Establishing the kingdom is the fundamental mission and message of Jesus. Establishing the kingdom is the fundamental mission and message of Jesus. This is the way to make sense of the New Testament, is in this kingdom mindset. Jesus came preaching. What did he preach? Repent, turn around, because the kingdom of heaven has come. The motive for establishing the kingdom is love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, because that's where this world is headed. So the motive for establishing this kingdom was love. The mechanism for establishing the kingdom is the cross. Colossians chapter 2 says that on the cross, Jesus triumphed over the powers that run this world. So the motive is God's love for us, the mechanism is the cross to triumph over the forces of this world. You also see this exodus motif. If you remember the Jews in history, Moses goes to Egypt where they are slaves. God overpowers the gods of Egypt, takes his people out of slavery to literally the promised land, sets up literally a kingdom, a nation called Israel. Jesus comes invading a world ruled by the gods of this world and takes us who are enslaved to it and brings us into a new kingdom, a new nation, if you will, called the kingdom or the rule of God. That's what Jesus is doing, and he's all about the kingdom. The parables are how Jesus, it's his preferred method for describing what the kingdom is like. Fundamentally, the parables have been called world disrupting, and they do. They disrupt our world. The way Romans describes what Jesus is doing, Romans 12, 2, it says, 
we're no longer to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we'll be transformed, made into something new, by the renewing of our minds. So the parables, these stories, are a very subversive way to undermine the worldview or the way of thinking in this world and basically transform it, turn it upside down to a kingdom way of thinking. The parables are all about describing, now that Jesus has established the kingdom, what is the way of thinking and the way of living in the kingdom? That's what the parables are about. They're very subversive, they're very disruptive. Well, since the kingdom involves a new way of thinking and living, there's a fundamental tension because we also said, and this is where we left our discussion in the last lesson, is that God's kingdom is in this world, but not of this world. In other words, it's an invading force, if you will. The kingdom is in this world, but it's not like this world. It's very different. So we too are in a world, but we are not of the world. We are not compatible with the world. That sets up a tension in our lives, in our Christian life. We are torn. It manifests itself in a lot of ways. Uh, one would be the, I don't measure up. I'm a citizen of the kingdom, but I keep getting pulled by this world, a la Romans chapter 7. I know what it is to do right, and I wrestle with being able to do it. And so we get this tension set up. We have depression. We have anxiety. In other words, we wrestle with this sinful nature that wants to pull us back into that world while the kingdom is basically transforming us. This sets up a lot of tension. What I'd like to talk about now is resolving that tension. And this lesson is hugely powerful. These two parables that talk about one of the really foundational characteristics of the kingdom are the key to lessening that tension, to just really removing the tension of being in the world but not of the world. So that's what we want to talk about. Kingdom establishment, what does life in the kingdom look like? How do we live it out? What's the nature of our transformation? And then most importantly, what I want to spend most of the time on in this lesson is, what does that mean for me? What do I do to fundamentally change who I am and live with joy and peace and love in a world that that's not the norm? Okay, first characteristic. I want to show you something that should scare you to death. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is one of the foundational characteristics of the kingdom. Jesus says, here's how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We looked at that last time. We said this is what Jesus came to do, is to bring God's will, his rule, to earth as it is in heaven. That's what the kingdom is called. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us what we owe just like we've forgiven those who owe us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the ruler of this present world. And then Jesus adds this, and this is the scary part. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's a really strong statement that Jesus is making. It's a scary statement, but what it basically says, and here's how I want us to understand this, it says that forgiveness is an absolutely foundational characteristic of the kingdom of God. 
I mean, if you think about it, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. If you don't, you will not. That's serious. So it's a foundational characteristic. And Jesus is going to tell actually several parables. I'm going to tell you two. I mean, there are many parables about the kingdom, more than anything else. But I'm going to give you two so we can investigate this characteristic of forgiveness. The first parable is going to examine the relationship between forgiveness and love. And there's a connection there that we really need to pay attention to. This first parable, you're probably familiar with both of these, it gets set up because of a visit Jesus makes to a Pharisee's house. Let's dive in. This is in Luke chapter 7. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And to understand this, unlike the pictures that you see from the Middle Ages, they didn't eat at tables. They would literally lie down with all of their faces toward the center, and they would reach out and dip into the food and dip with their bread, etc. And their feet would be back behind them. Sometimes they'd have couches, sometimes they'd have pillows, but they literally reclined to eat on one, on one arm. So they're all reclining, looking around, feet are behind them. So he reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, this is not unusual, and the thing that people would slip in along the walls in the back to listen to the conversation. Well, she slips in and gets by Jesus' feet and begins to weep. She began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on his feet. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. In other words, he would not let her touch him. Now, I want you to notice the situation here. You have righteous Pharisee, sinful woman. You have the Pharisee who's up on this level. You have the woman who's down on this level. And the parable, uh, the story, it's actually we're not into the parable yet, but the story makes no bones about that. She's a sinful woman. He is a Pharisee, and he really is morally better behaved than she is. So you have the Pharisee, you have the woman. So the Pharisee says if he knew that, he wouldn't let her touch him. And so Jesus says something, tells him a story, and tells him something. He, said, he answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he says, well, tell me, teacher. It's kind of a polite form of, of address. It doesn't imply that Simon thought Jesus uh, you know, was, was a great teacher. He said, I want to tell you a story. And here's our parable. It's called the parable of the two debtors. He said, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. Now, denarius is about a day's wage. This is a lot of money. This is more than a year's wages. Owed him 500 denarii and the other one 50 so maybe a couple of months, so a lot of difference in what they owed. Neither one of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled their debts. Now, which of them will love him more? Which will be more appreciative? Which will love him more? And Simon replies, well, I guess. Simon doesn't know where this is going. He says, I guess the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said, you have judged 
correctly. So Jesus sets up this story to make a point. And watch what happens. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? He said, now remember the status, sinful woman, righteous Pharisee. I came into your house and you didn't wash my feet. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, didn't really welcome me, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put any oil on my head, which was also traditional, a warm greeting, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved very much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus turns around to her and says, your sins are forgiven. Well, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who can forgive sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. You may go in peace. This is a fascinating uh, situation. Think where we end this parable. We end this parable with things turned upside down. You have the righteous Pharisee, you have the sinful woman. And Jesus says, her many sins. In other words, he isn't disputing it. He doesn't think she's a victim. He thinks she's a sinner. But what is he basically saying? He says, in the kingdom economy, her, she has been forgiven so much, out of that flows unbelievable amount of love. You, Simon, have very little to be forgiven, and consequently, you love little. So at the end of this parable, who do you sense has the better standing in the kingdom? The Pharisee, who is really comfortable with his behavior, or the woman who is so broken by her own sin that she's weeping uncontrollably. She comes to Jesus because she realizes, you're the only hope that I have. My life is a mess. My sin has overwhelmed me. My act is not together. You're the only hope that I have. He forgives her sins, and she wells up with this love. And so you begin to see how it turns it upside down. Same thing you saw in the rich man and Lazarus, by the way. Because what Jesus is going to say is life in the kingdom, the economy of the kingdom, if you will, is very different than the economy of this world. Rich man and Lazarus, it begins with what? Rich man living in luxury, Lazarus wishing he could get the scraps from his table. They both die, go to heaven, Lazarus being comforted by Abraham, rich man being tormented. Here you see righteous Pharisee, sinful woman in the kingdom economy. The repentant heart of the woman has resulted in a great deal of love. The unrepentant heart the focus on behavior of the Pharisee results in a man who really loves very little. You can tell that, in fact, because of the woman. This is, it's one of those things that even in human terms, you can observe how little he cares for her and how little he cares about her. He has behavior, but he doesn't have any love. That's atypical even for us. Let me give you a story to illustrate that. My wife, Laura, is a realtor really good one, and remembers, this is infuriating, every detail of every house she's ever been in. I remember no details of any house I've ever been in. I can't even tell you what color our walls are in our house, right? So very different. She thinks HGTV is the greatest creation in life because you can watch all these shows. 
That is not what I like to watch. But, and I'm sure you've seen this in your marriage too, I have come to love a lot of things I didn't used to love because she loves them. Does that make sense? And you don't even see that in the Pharisee. His relationship with God is basically around his behavior. He cares very little for her, even though God cares very much for her. Give you an even more powerful story. We have a dog named Daisy. This is powerful for me. I don't know if it's powerful for you. We have a dog named Daisy. We got Daisy when she was a puppy. She was really cute for about a day. <laughs> now, my wife loves this dog. Dog's really old now. She's had a life. I don't know where we went wrong, but very early in her life, Daisy took a bad path. She just kind of, she just sort of took that evil path, really, you know, and just sort of became a servant of Satan. If you want to just, I'll just tell you, that's what I think. But my wife loves this dog, and I've had this kind of not such a loving relationship with this dog a lot of years, and I need to be careful what I say, because I usually get a lot of emails when I talk about Daisy. But let me just tell you this. I have come to love Daisy, not through any merit of her own, <laughs> but because Laura loves her. All right? So I have come to love this dog because Laura loves her. You would think that you would see us doing that because God loves them. And you would hope that we would do that. But I will tell you this, that is not sufficient to live the life in the kingdom. The fact that God is love and God loves should attract us, it should draw us. But this is one of the areas where you will feel tension. You're going to say, you know what, God loves this person, so I should love this person, but I don't. It begins to thaw my heart, but I really don't. And it sets up this tension of, I'm supposed to be, but I'm not. And this is how I feel. And here's what it comes down to ultimately. Ultimately, our state of being forgiven allows us to love others, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. I want you to think about that. It's fundamentally our state of being forgiven that allows us to love others, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. We respond with love out of our deep experience of forgiveness. Think about the woman. What is this parable teaching us? He says, the two debtors, which one loves him more? The one whose debt was canceled. In other words, the one who received this forgiveness and had this deep experience of forgiveness, then appreciation, I'll use that word. It's a little lighter word than love, but you can appreciate that. That love flows out of him. Jesus said, he who's been forgiven little loves little. And so it's out of this state of being forgiven that love flows. And I don't know if we think about it that way, but I really want you to think about it that way. If you think about, I need to love people because I should, you will be very, very frustrated with trying to live up to that. People are just not that nice. I mean, even in church. And that's where you think, really guilty. It's like, great, these are other Christians, and I don't even like some of these people. All right? you're going to feel like you don't measure up because you feel, I should, but I don't. Then you're going to realize, well, is God then going to somehow magically empower me to love these people? And so you'll pray, God, give me love for these people. And you're going to be really frustrated with that as well. What Jesus is teaching about the kingdom is one of the foundational characteristics is the fact, and here's the key, you have been forgiven. 
a deep experience of realizing I have been forgiven, love will flow out of that, not out of my will, not out of anything that's supposed to happen. It's a really key teaching. There's a big difference between trying harder to love and experiencing God's forgiveness. That's where this, this parable is going. And Jesus, to the extent to which we love other people is a direct relationship to the extent that we actually understand how much God loves and has forgiven us, particularly the forgiveness. Forgiveness and love, here's a key idea. Love flows out of our sense of being forgiven, our status in the kingdom. Let's go on to the next parable. I want to explore one other area of this, forgiveness and mercy. Jesus tells another parable about forgiveness and mercy. This one's in Matthew 18. Now, Peter understands that forgiveness is foundational to this kingdom life. It's something radically different, but Peter's a pragmatist. And so Peter wants to know, let's not take this forgiveness thing too far. Kind of makes you wonder what Peter's family was like, frankly. So Peter comes to Jesus, and he's really proud because the rabbi said that a really righteous man would forgive three times, and then we're writing you off. But Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How about up to seven times? And Jesus answered, close. How about 77 times? There's an interesting little play here for you Bible scholars, by the way. If you remember back in Genesis, there's a character named Lamech, not a good character. He's a proud man. And he says, if Cain was avenged seven times, I'll be avenged 77 times. And what he meant was, I will carry out my vengeance on anybody who wounds me to an unbelievable extent. And Jesus turns that upside down and he says, I want you to forgive 77 times. So what he's saying is, is that forgiveness is a limitless experience. And he goes on to explain this to Peter and the uh, disciples by telling a story. He says, let me tell you a story. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, notice how he frames this in kingdom, thing, in kingdom thinking. He's going to talk about forgiveness in kingdom terms. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like, what's it like, Jesus? It's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, these are probably high-level servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. This is an unbelievable amount of money. This is like the national debt. Just to put this in perspective, when Herod, one of the richest men in the world, who had all the resources of Judea to draw on, his income was about 900 talents, and that's an unbelievable amount of money, 900 talents in a year. This is 10,000 talents. Jesus is using some hyperbole. In other words, he's really using a big number to get their attention. So you hear this and you go, this guy's toast. He said, owed him 10,000 talents and he was brought in. Now, since he obviously was not able to pay, and they're all like, I know what's going to happen here. The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and everything he had be sold to repay the debt. He's going to become a slave. And the master is going to take what he can get. And this guy and his children are all sold off into slavery. The servant fell on his knees and said, please be patient with me and I will pay back everything. I had a friend in high school that did this to me all the time. 
there is no way this guy in his entire life could pay back 10,000 times. He can't even make that much money in his life, let alone repay it. And I had a buddy in high school that, that borrowed money from me all the time, and he'd always say, I'm going to pay you back. So then he'd say, oh, I need to borrow some more, and I'll add that to it, and I've got this scheme, I'm going to pay you back. And it's probably about two years into high school when I realized, he's not going to pay me back. You know, this guy's never going to happen. Well, that's the situation. It's never going to happen. Be patient with me, and I'll pay back everything. The master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. And, you know, when you're hearing this story, you realize, whoa. Canceled the debt and let him go? Jesus, that's a pretty unbelievable story. I mean, that's, that's amazing, uh, an amazing story. Well, that's the first scene. Now switch to the second scene. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred denarii. Now, that's a few months' wages, not very much money. Jesus, again, he's using hyperbole to set up a sharp contrast. You'll notice in all the parables, there's a contrast. Sinful woman, righteous Pharisee. Poor Lazarus, rich man. Here, guy who owed an unbelievable amount of money, guy who owed not that much money. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Believe it or not, this is common practice. The Roman historians and various things write about the idea of literally choking people who owed you money. I mean, literally, extortion. So they began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, and you see the parallelism. He's going to say almost exactly the same words. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. Now, that is a possibility in this situation, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt, until his family somehow came up with the money and satisfied the debt. So you see the contrast. A man who gets his debt repaid and then turns around and doesn't do it. And at this point, you should be angry. Jesus has tapped into an innate sense of justice, and you're feeling like, this is wrong. Everybody thinks this is really wrong. Scene three. When the other servants saw what had happened, and they're like, yeah, maybe they can help this guy. They were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had at least a little mercy on your fellow servant? kind of like I had on you, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. That's also historically accurate. Romans also allowed torture so that you would pay. He said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It's not a threat. He started this by saying, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. Let me tell you why your question is just kind of the wrong question, Peter. You want to know how many times to forgive? He said, let me put this in perspective for you. You've been given this debt, and you want to quibble about how many times you'll forgive. So this is a story of the kingdom, and it's the relationship between forgiveness and mercy. Just as in the first parable, love flows from what? Forgiveness. In this, mercy flows from what? Forgiveness. Why do we even think? Because let's face it, this guy had a legal right to expect the other servant to pay him back. I mean, he's well within his rights. Why do we expect mercy from him? 
because he's received this unbelievable forgiveness. And it seems a sense of wrongness then about how he's behaving. Mercy also flows out of this forgiveness. So just as forgiveness, our state of being forgiven is what leads to our ability to love. That's a response to our forgiveness. The same is true with mercy. Here's a great quote talking about the early church. Forgiveness is the hallmark of the community's life. Forgiveness is the hallmark of the church. No one should be quick to judge others, for we are all radically dependent on God's mercy. In other words, we're all in the situation of that first servant. Consequently, that forgiveness flows into mercy. Our state of being forgiven allows us to show mercy to others regardless of whether or not they deserve it. You see how we get around the whole merit system when we're dealing with other people? is because we've been so extravagantly given forgiveness that we can extravagantly then give love and mercy from that, out of that. So we extend mercy as we've received mercy. The key here, what I really want you to think about is, notice in these parables, nowhere in this parable does it say, you need to do this because I told you to. You need to do this and get on an improvement plan until you become a better person. You need to try harder to love like God loves, and you need to try harder to have mercy like God has mercy. Nothing like that in any of these parables. I know sometimes we process our Christian life that way, and my contention to you is that's why we have such unsatisfactory Christian lives, is we're still trying to do this like Simon the Pharisee. Jesus says, let me tell you how things are in the kingdom. The kingdom starts out with this one thing extravagant forgiveness. That's the end of the parables, and I'd like to move in and spend time talking about what does that mean for us. Are there any questions before I move on? Because I want to spend a, a lot of time here on what are we going to do with this. It's going to make a radical difference in how we think about our life. Question? And some of these may lead into that, but mm -hmm. in the uh, first parable when Jesus says, go in peace, can you explain how that, what that means and the power behind it, how it relates to the kingdom? Yeah, the idea of going in peace, this is a real kingdom attitude. Let me give you a passage. And the reason I'm giving you this passage, we talked about Romans 12, we talked about Colossians 2, we talked about John 3.16. I want you to understand that this kingdom idea is the only idea that really brings all of the Bible together. So let me give you another passage. Romans 5.1. After, Jesus gets, or after Paul gets through explaining the gospel, and that is, the wrath of God is ready to be poured out on all sin. But a righteousness, a way of reconciling with God has been revealed through Jesus Christ, through faith. In other words, the love of God is the motive for the kingdom, and the cross is the mechanism. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, in other words, since we've been made right by faith, what did Jesus say in that parable? Your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven because you trusted me. In other words, you just came and said, I'm broken. I am hopeless. My hope is in you. He said, since we've been made right through that same faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody wants peace, but everybody's having a hard time finding it, aren't we? Even in the church, we wrestle to find lives of peace, and instead we find too much anxiety, too much not measuring up, too much guilt, too much 
still goofed up, still not the man or the woman that I want to be. We, this peace eludes us, but it doesn't have to. Peace is a hallmark of the kingdom. It is a result, it is a fruit of kingdom living. And we're going to talk about how to get that in just a minute. So that's a very kingdom thing to say, actually. Good question. Um, in Matthew 18, 24, um, we're understanding the 10,000 talents to be hyperbole. But is there any discussion about what the servant could possibly have borrowed that money for or why he would have had such a huge debt? Jesus doesn't tell us how this guy ran up such a big debt. I mean, that's a massive gambling debt. That's a Trumpian kind of debt. I mean, that's serious leverage, right? That's called bankruptcy on a big scale. No, there's not. Uh, scholars postulate several things. He's been dishonest. He's been stealing from the treasury. But no one really knows. And it really isn't germane. You see the contrast Jesus is setting up. doesn't deal with their motive. It deals with the mercy. So, no, there's nothing... Uh, that anybody knows as to how he could have run up that kind of debt. I think it's borrowing money to build casinos, but that's just my opinion. I don't know. Okay. How do we love um, people that, for instance, are radical Muslims? You can't love people who are radical Muslims by yourself. That is just not possible. And you can't love radical Muslims if you think, if you understand love, to be what the world thinks love is. You are not going to have a, well, if you do, come talk to me about it, but if you have a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart for ISIS, I'd like to know about that. <laughs> That's not possible. A biblical idea of love, you most certainly can, but not through your own volition. Part of us is going to say, well, wait a minute. I shouldn't have love for ISIS. Stop and think about it. That's exactly what S Simon said about the woman. She's such a sinner. I don't care about her, and it's okay not to care about her. The problem with that is, that's where you and I are. By God's standard, what do we look like? The only defense we have is, I'm not as bad as ISIS. God's like, appreciate that, you know? But that isn't going to get you to heaven. We'll talk about that a little bit. The only hope you have of loving anybody Forget radical Muslims. There are even worse people in the world than the radical Muslims. There's certainly been worse people in history than radical Muslims. The only hope you have to love anyone is living in this kingdom way. And I'll tell you a story in just a minute uh, that'll, that'll probably, hopefully, shed a little bit of light on that. Other question? I'll come back to that with a real-life story that you're going to remember when I tell you. What does it mean to forgive? For example... In the parable, does forgiving mean that you continue to loan the money knowing it won't be paid back? That's a great question. So let's talk about the so what, because I'm going to start with that, because I knew we'd need to talk about this before we could get on to something else, because it's a fair question. So what does this mean for me? Does it mean that if I forgive, that I also has to have to forget? That's really what that's basically saying is, come back, I'll loan you some more money. In other words, it's like I just totally forgot, you know, kind of like goldfish memory, right? What a goldfish have a memory, like 0.5 seconds or something? You know, that's the question. Does forgiveness mean forgetting? No. There's another word that starts with F for that. It's called foolishness, okay? Forgiving and forgetting are two different things. But I'm not walking back on the forgiveness. 
I just want to talk about what forgiveness actually looks like. To forget is basically denying the nature of what's happening. You remember Jesus, and you're going to see this all through the Gospels. Remember the woman caught in adultery? What does he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. In other words, you are a sinner. You have a sin problem, and we need to deal with it. Here, when he talks to the woman, he says her many, many sins need to be dealt with, and I have forgiven them, and that's going to be the key for dealing with those sins. Forgiving someone means putting them back into the situation of being right. I'll give you a great example. Let me just go back to Daisy. Daisy has done a lot of sinful things in our house. Now, I have come to the point where I can forgive her for all of the things that she has done in our house, but I lock her up when we leave, right? That's actually pretty smart. I'm helping her stop sinning. And I am making it unnecessary for me to forgive her. Loving someone, and now I'm back to serious, loving someone means acknowledging what you were dealing with. Enabling sin is not loving. Ignoring someone's character and putting them in a situation that is not good for them is not loving them. So forgetting is, is just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. To forgive someone says, despite what you have done, we are right. And out of that, out of my state of forgiveness, I'm going to do what's good for you. That's what the biblical idea of love is. I will do what builds you up. Love is a decision I will make to work for your good. How can I work for your good if I forget what your sin issue is? How can I help you? How can I take the alcoholic and say, I've decided you can tend bar for me? Or take the person with a gambling problem and say, why don't you run my casino? Is, is that helping anybody? It's not. Forgiving is not the same as forgetting. But it is not the same as penance. This is my second point. Does forgiveness allow for penance? Penance, Catholic idea of you got to make up for this in some way. No, it does not. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but it also does not allow for penance. Forgiveness is about restoring someone, not saying you're a provisional. And we do this to each other a lot. And in fact, those of you that are married, I really want to warn you that the place where this happens most of the time is in our marriages. And now you say, wait a minute, that's the person I love most in this world. I know. And that's the person we so often give this real conditional forgiveness. Conditional forgiveness is not forgiveness. And that basically says, I'll give you the silent treatment for a while, and after you've paid your price for a few days, then we'll be okay. Or I will forgive you after you have done certain things. That's not forgiveness. That's called repayment plan. Right? <laughs> forgiveness is not forgetting, but it also doesn't hold a grudge. It also doesn't say you must earn it. That's repayment. So forgiveness, biblical idea of forgiveness, is basically a very intelligent, eye-opening way of saying... I'm going to forgive you, and it has absolutely nothing to do with whether you deserve it. In other words, if that were the case, I'd say, I'll forgive you, but you must get over this addiction. I'll forgive you, but you must begin to act differently. That's not forgiveness. 
That's a conditional bargain. And that's how we operate when we are on a merit thing. Simon would have been perfectly happy to accept that woman if she totally cleaned up her life, gone on the TV circuit on Oprah, become a paragon of virtue, and agreed with everything Simon said, he might have let her come over for dinner at that point. That's not forgiveness. That's repayment. The forgiveness that you see restores people despite their sin. Does that make sense? So it's not forgetting, and it's not penance. Here are the two ideas, the two really key ideas that we need to put into practice based on this. We need to change the way we think and change the way we act. The awareness of our own forgiveness is the soil in which love and mercy grow. That is a more profound statement than you think. So let me explain that for just a second. If we keep trying to be loving, forgiving, and have mercy to people out of our own ability because we should, we will not have peace and we will not measure up and we will be on what I call the Christian roller coaster. Did well today, didn't do well tomorrow. Well, did a little better today, but no, somebody really got to me and I didn't do well tomorrow. We will never fundamentally change like that. We will always ride the roller coaster because we fundamentally, they're thinking that our effort is what is going to lead to these kingdom attributes and that my effort will lead to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. That is not true. That is not a kingdom way of thinking. Here's the radical thought. The radical thought is this. If you want to love like God calls us to love, forgive like God calls us to forgive, have mercy like God calls us to have mercy, we must get the intellectual knowledge of our forgiveness all the way down and feel it in our heart. So if you said to me, Terry, I'm having a hard time loving people, having a hard time loving ISIS, having a hard time having mercy, have a hard time forgiving, what should I do? My answer, I think Jesus' answer, I think what these parables are saying to us is something pretty simple. It says, you need to have stop and really begin to feel your sense of forgiveness. Simon had a hard time loving because he didn't think he was forgiven for very much. The woman had an easy time loving. She knew she'd been forgiven much. She felt what God had done. It's an interesting story, you're going to remember this, it comes from back in 2006 uh, in the news, and it's, it's a bit of, of, a, of an example. It's in October of 2006, you may remember there was a guy named Charles Roberts, and he uh, went into this Amish, uh, Amish school, Pennsylvania, and he killed, took a weapon in with him, killed five little girls and injured five others and then he killed himself. You may remember this. I know it's been almost 10 years ago, but it really made the news. It's like a totally senseless, you go into an Amish school and kill a bunch of school children. Do you remember what happened after that, though? What was so countercultural to the world? What you saw happening after that is, pretty quickly, his widow gets a visit from some of the elders in their Amish congregation to comfort her. You see, a lot of the Amish people go to his funeral. Now, here's my question. Are they doing that out of just this effort? There's no way in the world your child just got shot and you have that kind of reaction. That's not a normal thing. I mean, all the world admired it, but they thought, crazy Amish people, right? People don't do that. 
The only way to do those radical kinds of things, and those parables are radical, is out of a deep sense of knowing our forgiveness. So here's what I want to say to you, is if you want to live the kingdom life, then I don't want you to try harder. I just want you to feel it more deeply. Does that make sense? That's really a different way of approaching this. I want you to feel your forgiveness. That's why a sinless gospel doesn't work. This therapeutic gospel that's really popular in certain parts of American Christianity is come to Jesus, he'll fix you up. Uh, you don't ever hear the word sin mentioned. If you have no sin, I mean, we don't want to talk about that because that sounds so judgmental. Well, welcome to the world. We're all sinners, aren't we? And we have that problem that needs to be dealt with. If I don't think my sin needs to be dealt with, who am I in this parable? Simon. Simon doesn't think his sin needs to be dealt with. What does the woman think? She's like, I have a massive sin problem. My life is going nowhere without you. And I'm weeping. My heart is broken for this. That's why the sinless gospel leads to no kind of Christian life. You do not find people who are experiencing the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It isn't going to happen. Those who are forgiven little, love little. It's not until we really come to grips with the fact that, you know what? I need the forgiveness of God. And I have the forgiveness of God that all of a sudden these wellsprings open up and you go, it's going to make a radical difference. So if we're having trouble with that, this is the diagnosis. We need to become aware of the forgiveness that we've been given. Question? Um, okay. I am extravagantly forgiven. Therefore, do I have a, any position to hold a stance in favor of the death penalty or against gay marriage or in favor of deportation? On and on. Uh, programs or positions that could be interpreted as showing little mercy. How do I maintain a moral standard while showing mercy and love? That's a great question. And I want to I turn this a little bit around. You do not have any right to enforce a moral standard. But God does. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't condemn immorality and sin in the world. God condemns immorality and sin in the world. Do you understand that distinction? I understand that when you point at things, the world hears us condemning it, and sometimes we sound like we're condemning it. Can I speak the truth to this world about what God has said is true? Absolutely. Can I speak about, I think this is wrong? No, I really can't. Do you understand where I'm coming from? My motive for speaking to people has to be love, and where does that love come from? Knowing that I have received extravagant forgiveness, and I need to tell you, because I care, that you desperately need that extravagant forgiveness. Jesus didn't hesitate to tell Simon that he had a pride problem. He didn't hesitate to tell the woman she had a sin problem. We are going to go take a moral code to the world, moral code, if you will. It's really not a moral code. We're going to take truth to the world because God said it, not because we said it. If we're out there judging the world, meaning I'm angry at you because you're doing wrong, and that's why I'm here to tell you, you're doing wrong, and I want it fixed right now. That's not a Christian mindset. That's judgmental. If I say, you know what? God cared enough to send Jesus Christ for me, 
you, I had 10,000 talents and he told me it was forgiven. You, my brother, are carrying a deep debt of sin. That's what God said. And I have to tell you that you need to come to him. Do you understand the difference? That's why we can take a position on that because God has taken a position on that. So we need to stand for what God says is right, not what Terry thinks is right. And that's where we need to be careful being Pharisees. What was the Pharisees' problem? Did, were they saying some things that were not true? No. They said a lot of things that were true because God said it. And they said an awful lot of things that were what they added on. Does that make sense? Jesus never condemns the Pharisees. He said, your righteousness has to be even better than the Pharisees. Meaning, they understand what God said in the law. And they stand for what God said. But you know what? Then they decided that they would judge extra things. So that's what, that is why we can speak to that. Because God speaks to it. But absolutely right. I have no right to impose my moral code on anyone. Good question. It's easy to compare ourselves and how we think of ourselves as living um, as Christians. We compare that to others and might become judgmental of their lives. Is it true that we should not compare ourselves to others lest we become judgmental and unforgiving? Who are we to judge or withhold forgiveness and mercy from? Yeah, I mean, if you think about these parables, and there's another great passage that says, who are we to judge another man's servant? He is able to stand because God will make him stand. That does not say, and nor will you find anywhere in the New Testament or any of the teaching of Jesus that says, Jesus is okay with sin. Jesus is not okay with sin at all. He wasn't okay with my sin. He's not okay with your sin, period. Comparing ourselves to each other is just a way to earn to get back into the merit system of being right with God. Never going to work. We do not need to compare ourselves to anyone. Here, actually, that's a two-edged sword because, frankly, and this is part of why Christian life is so hard, I spend my time looking for people worse than me so I can feel better, right? I spend my time saying, well, at least I'm a better husband than he is. Wouldn't you agree? No? Well, let me find somebody else. You know, I'll find somebody who's a worse husband than me. But then let's be honest, but we keep seeing something that's better and knowing that we don't measure up. You'll never win that game. That has nothing to do with the gospel. So you're right. Comparison, completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. We stand simply because God makes us stand, not because of any comparison with someone else. Good. Do you notice how we start to think about these things a little differently? We're going to look at it a little bit differently. Other questions? If forgiveness is not conditional, then how do we reconcile the master's decision to throw the original servant debtor into jail when he did not forgive his fellow servant? If Jesus is Jesus saying that Jesus forgives only those who forgive others. Yeah, let's talk about that. You're not going to like this, but I'm going to tell you, this is what God, this is what, this parable is, okay, you figured this out, that the master in this is God, right? And the servants are us in one form or another. Jesus says, you just can't get around this. He says, when we started this, that if you don't forgive them, he won't forgive you. Why? Is it conditional? No, it's not conditional. What is that saying? If I'm not willing to forgive you, am I trusting Christ? Apparently not. Obviously not. In other words, I'm not right with God. I'm trying to do this on my own. And you know what? I'm doomed if I try to do it on my own. So the 
question comes down, it's a little, turn this just a little bit. It's not so much that Jesus is saying, you better try hard and forgive so that I will then forgive you. That's completely not the message of these parables. He says, given that you live in this state of extravagant forgiveness, this is what it looks like. If it doesn't look like that in my life, guess what? I am not living in a state of extravagant forgiveness. It has not sunk into me. I am not in the kingdom. So absolutely, that is what it is saying. God can say, I'm not going to forgive your sins because he's God. He is the only righteous judge. He has a right to judge. God forgives sin that is offered up to him. Here's an interesting, let me give you a parable. Once there was a woman who was an incredible sinner and she went to Jesus Christ and poured her heart out and said, you are the only hope I have. And there was another woman who was an incredible sinner and she lived across town and she didn't care. Which one of them received forgiveness in this parable? This is not universalism. We'll get to parables of the kingdom that are called eschatological parables. There are actually more parables about judgment. I just didn't want to spring that on you right away. There are actually more parables about judgment than you would think. So yes, God has, is going to judge sin. There is no question about that. He will judge our sin. Our forgiveness, our mercy, and our love spring from our recognition of what he has given to us. That's, that's how you resolve that. So absolutely, the master's completely justified in judging sin. So just because we've been forgiven from sin, does that mean we won't suffer consequences? Romans 8.1. Another passage talks about this state of being in the kingdom. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You do, we do not suffer because of this extravagant forgiveness, our repentance, our forgiveness, and we'll end with that thought in just a minute. What this woman did is we will no longer pay the penalty of sin. We will still, in this world, suffer some of the effects of sin, absolutely. I mean, let's face it, we will indeed, there are consequences to things that we do. But we will, we will not be judged. They will not be held against us. So the penalty of sin is canceled. The power of sin in our life, God wants to remove that too. But there are consequences to what we do. Those consequences, however, need not be eternal. The problem with sin is not that it makes your life bad. See, here's the other problem with the sinless gospel. It just says, basically, we're not going to deal with sin. Jesus is just going to make your life better. Wonderful. For what? 70 years? And then I've got eternity? It really doesn't help you to go to hell with a better marriage. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? That's not the goal. Sin's power is not in that it makes your life difficult now. It, it will. I mean, I believe that sin has insidious consequences, but it can also be fun for a while. The power of sin is death. Again, Romans, sin leads to death. The rightness with God leads to eternal life. The problem with sin is eternity, not temporal. One more, and then we'll, uh, I want to finish with an idea that I want you to work on this week. Can you forgive someone and love them but not really like them very much? 
This sounds like a Peter, how many times must I uh, forget? Love has nothing to do with liking people. If loving and liking are the same thing, let me refer you, this is what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you just love the people who love you, let me translate that, that you like, pagans do that. That's not kingdom living. That's called worldly living. Where you see the power of the kingdom is when you can love, meaning I will work for your good, I will do what is good for you, for people you don't like. That's when love shows it. Stop and think about this. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Actually, let me go back and tell you the first part. God shows his love in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. Do you think Jesus had a warm spot in his heart for us? No. He looked at us, and what did he see? Daisy. <laughs> Pooping in the house. It's not love if he said, oh, my gosh, that Terry, he is such an evil little creature, but I just got to love that little rascal. You know, I think I'm going to go help him out. Is, what's the point of that? Love is while I was an enemy of God, he gave everything for me. Whoa, that's one of the most profound statements in the Bible. That's what love is. Love is a decision, not a feeling. And so think about it this way. I really want you to think about it this way. All those annoying people in your life are opportunities <laughs> for you to live the kingdom life. Let me close with this. This, this is the one thing I really want you to work on. So number one, awareness of our forgiveness is where love and mercy come from. I want you to really think about that. That is upside down of the way most of us are trying to live the kingdom life. So if you said, Terry, I'm having a hard time loving people, I'll say, then I want you to quit trying, and I want you to start trying to really understand, really feel, make this distance from here to here about what God has done for you. Okay. You go, oh, it can't be that simple. Surely i got to try. Nope, it's that simple. I want you to really deeply feel what you have been forgiven every day because you and I sin every day. Here's the second thing. You know what your greatest challenge is going to be? I'll tell you what the greatest challenge for most of us is. Forgiving ourselves. Forgiving ourselves is the biggest challenge. Here's an interesting passage. This is a great way. This is what I want you to do this week. If we claim to be without sin, we're kidding ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's Simon. So I don't have much sin. Then you don't have much forgiveness. You don't have much love. You don't have much mercy. You're going to have a hard time getting into the kingdom. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Wait a minute. Do I got to pay a penance? Nope. Do I got to try harder? Nope. What does it say? Let's just be honest. I sinned. I need your forgiveness. What was that woman doing? She's in there bawling because she goes, I got no hope but you. That's what this is saying is, God, I got no excuse. I've got no hope. You know, search me, David said, and know my heart. Remove any impurities from me. That's confession. That's saying, God, this is what I did. We need to confess so that we remember, whoa, it's starting to sink into me just exactly what kind of extravagant forgiveness I am getting here. The model of the kingdom life is this. At the end of every day, we turn from our sin, confess it to God, and we start new every day. Here's the problem. 
God is willing to forgive us on those terms, you're probably not willing to forgive yourself on those terms. You're still expecting yourself to measure up. You expect yourself to do better tomorrow. You expect your mate to do better tomorrow. You may have a performance improvement plan for your mate and be tracking how well they're doing. You may have a performance improvement plan for yourself and be tracking how far you fail to measure up. I really, here's, the, here's what I'd like you to do this week. You, you do this for a week, I'll give you your money back if you don't start to think about your life completely differently. And it's gonna take a while to break this habit of trying to measure up. You go, oh, I'm not trying. I know that God forgave me. You know you don't feel that God forgave you. Does that make sense? Love is gonna flow effortlessly out of this sense, this deep understanding of I have been forgiven. Consequently, you've got to let it go and forgive yourself because that's the worst kind of pride. That says, you may forgive me, but I'm sorry my standards are higher than yours. <laughs> right? No. Forgiving ourselves is probably one of our big things. So this week, here's what I want you to do this week. This is what these parables teach us. If we want to be more of a kingdom living, I want you to suspend your judgment of yourself. I want you to suspend analyzing yourself and I want you to dwell on God's forgiveness. And you're probably cringing a little bit. Really, that can't work. You're saying, that can't be that simple. Are you telling me that how I act doesn't matter? Oh, no, I'm telling you how you act really matters. I'm just telling you that the only way for that to change is to quit judging it and turn it over to God. So stop judging yourself. Dwell on God's forgiveness. Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to work on forgiving yourself and letting go. Romans 8, 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not even from ourselves. Does that sound a little weird to you? That this is your instruction for the week is quit judging yourself and let go? Every night, you just go confess your sins to God and you wake up every morning and you start fresh and you begin to feel, you begin to really realize how deeply you have been forgiven. Does that make sense? I challenge you to do that. I give you permission to quit judging yourself for a week and just bask in God's forgiveness and see if it doesn't start to change your attitude. All right? Come back next week and you tell me, when you stop judging yourself and you begin to dwell on nothing, not be more patient, be more kind, be more loving, be a better person, be this... I am completely forgiven because of Jesus Christ. You just think about that for a week and see if it doesn't start to change your attitude. That's my money-back guarantee. If I sense it's not going well, I won't be here next week. But I think it will. I think it will. I'll talk to you next week. Try that. I want you to do it.